Hey everybody, this is episode 112 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. I'm here with a special guest today, one of my athletes, one of the rogue coaches here in Austin, Ashley Rollins. Welcome to the show. Hi. Ashley is one of our coaches, as I mentioned. She coaches a, a half marathon group that meets on Tuesday nights here in Austin with us at Rogue. Has been doing that for a long time. Also coaches our core class. It's available to every one of our members that meets on Monday nights. 6 p.m. 6 p.m. She tortures people. <laughs> and if you live in Austin and don't train with us, I would say just come check out Ashley's core class. You'll be sore for days, yes. but you'll love every <laughs> minute of it. So Ashley, as I mentioned, she's one of my athletes, trains with my group, The Morning Show, and has been on a journey for a while to qualify for Boston. So we're going to talk about that journey yeah. today that's had some crazy unexpected twists in the last yeah. <laughs> couple of months in both directions. And so there's a couple of reasons why we've got Ashley's Ashley on. One, because I wanted to talk about your journey to get a Boston qualifying time and also talk about a cautionary tale about why that time was recently taken away from you. So we're going to go into all of the the gory details, I'll call yeah. it, <laughs> in this discussion. But thank you for joining me, Ashley. I know this is going to be a tough topic to <laughs> yeah. talk about. Be fun. But <laughs> I really appreciate you being willing to share your story to help educate not only on the cautionary tale that we're going to tell, but also I think there's a lot to be learned from what you've done to get to the time you ran at the California International Marathon. I think there's a lot of lessons to learn from that. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit about your running journey. Give me a little bit of a background. When did you get into long distance running and how did it evolve for you to the point where you wanted to try to get a Boston qualifier? Um, so I graduated from college and then moved down to Austin in 2010. And I started running a little bit in college. I had a really bad breakup, and so it was kind of a way to just get out of my own space and my own head and definitely out of my apartment, and I started running. And when I moved to Austin, I realized, because I'm from Chicago area, and it was cold all the time, and so when I realized in Austin, everyone's super fit, and everyone runs, and everyone's active, I just kind of got sucked up into the culture. And so I started running by myself on the trail, and then I would do the three mile loop. And then eventually when I didn't have to like walk on the three mile loop, I did the four mile loop and I thought I was so great. And then I did the five and it just kind of went from there. And I had a friend from high school who moved down. Her husband was away at boot camp in San Angelo. And so she was a runner and she kind of convinced me that we should run um, a half marathon. And I said, okay, cool. And it was something that we could do together. And I just kind of fell in love with it and then just, just kind of went from there how did you find us Ooh, what did i do oh um i was bartending <laughs> at the time and um my now like very best friend came in and she um was like hey i'm a runner too do you um do you run do we you know do you um train anywhere whatever and she's the one who introduced me to rogue and so our very first training group was with uh carolyn who's um awesome but um we i had never ran i think i think it ran one half and so she was like let's sign up for this this half marathon training program and i just remember coming and i was just a complete fish out of water because i had no idea <laughs> what i was doing <laughs> yeah when was that oh god um 2000 
2011. So I think I ran San Antonio full. So it would have been late 2010 because I think we started, we would have started training in May of 2011 for San Antonio in November, back when it was in November. <laughs> yeah, then you did your first full San Antonio mm-hmm. 2011. It's terrible. It was so <laughs> hot. It was so hot. <laughs> That's San Antonio for you. And, yeah. then, and then you did another full shortly yeah. thereafter so <laughs> in Austin in, in 2012, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think I did what every beginner does and you start to sign up for races and then you just sign up for every race. And so I had signed up for the distance challenge <laughs> as part <laughs> of training for San Antonio. I was like, oh, I can run these halves. This will be my long run. And so I s- did the distance challenge, did San Antonio hated marathons because it was so hot and I was like I'll never do one again and then I had to because I was in the distance challenge and I had already signed up for the full track and I think I was past the deadline to switch to the half and so I was like okay I'll do it and then I had a really good time at 3m and I kind of looked at the um, standings on the distance challenge. And in my age group, I was like second or third. And I was like, oh, I can't not do it now. I have to do Austin. Yeah. And I did Austin and ended up, um, I took 28 minutes off my first marathon. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's amazing kind of what uh, better weather will do. And that was only three, months, months, three yeah. months later. Yeah. The distance challenge by way of background for those who aren't living yeah. in Austin is is a series of races that leads up to the Austin Marathon. In February here it has a couple of half marathons, it has a 10 mile race and some other distances races. Yeah, 5K, distances yeah. leading up. It used to have a 10k. Those races have changed a little bit through the years but anyway it's a series that leads up to the Austin it full and half in February and those that complete all of those races get a special prize as the distance challenge finishers. Yeah. So you finished the distance challenge in 2012. Yes. At what point, and you ran around four hours, I believe, for yeah, that, I that marathon. Ch- I, that Austin marathon was so interesting. One, it's the Austin marathon. And so it, I feel like it's, it was so much more difficult than San Antonio because it had so many more hills. And coming off the marathon cycle, I hadn't really, tra- I had continued training, but I hadn't, kind of went at it in the same way so um having such a good day the weather was great and everything kind of just worked well but I remember on that last day when I was finishing the Austin Marathon on the old course when it came kind of down through the UT campus I was in front of the four-hour pacers and I remember thinking I'm gonna do it this is awesome and I came in like I was so new to marathons and new to running I didn't realize that when you start ahead of the pacers, like I, I was messed up. And so I finished in like, I think my official time was like four hours and eight seconds. And I was so like, oh, uh, your man. Chip, your chip. You didn't realize yeah, the chip didn't difference. Yeah, I didn't realize the chip difference. And it's such a, you know, just an early beginner running <laughs> move. So still relatively new in 2012. Mm-hmm. And really, we've only been doing it for a year and a half at that point, roughly, right? Yeah. At what point, where did you go from there? And at what point did you start thinking, hey, I could qualify for Boston? Um. I switched over. So after the Austin Marathon in February, I switched over to Team Rogue and I was running with John Shrub and Team Rogue I, being our most yes. advanced group. Yes. <laughs> I was very ambitious. Um and so we I think the fall race for that cycle was Chicago. And so I that was just like the next race and I just I 
mostly wanted to in that next race break four hours because I was just like that was the next for me the next big barrier and I think I think going into training I think I realized that I was faster than I thought I was and just training with a group and being really dedicated and then switching to two workouts a week instead of one um I remember asking if I could try to run a Boston qualifier and being quickly shut down. <laughs> um, but I, I definitely think that was kind of when the seed was planted. But you didn't make it to Chicago. I did run that. Did chi- you run Chicago? So that year I did. Okay. Um, I gimped into the start line. Um, I think we kind of said that I finished on one leg. I had <laughs> had, I've always had issues with, my hips and just had issues that day had a great 18 mile race and then a not so great last eight <laughs> so i think Where i finished finish? uh i finished 401 missing thought, missing yeah. the goal yeah and then that so that was 2012 as well mm-hmm. and then from there to really 2018 mm-hmm. you continued training but had Lots of up and downs. Is that fair to say? Yes. What, what challenges did you face in that, gosh, almost six years? Yeah. Um, I think my biggest issue as a runner was just trying to find consistency and try to find a volume that worked for me with an intensity that worked for me um, and kind of learn how to balance the two. I think my initial success as a runner is is something that happens because you're so new and you and I had such a hot first race and I didn't really know what I could do and so seeing these huge leaps and bounds from my first marathon to my second marathon made me think that this is what we always did and every marathon was a huge PR and and if you weren't chipping away huge chunks then you weren't doing it right and so I think I just struggled for a long time with learning how to manage all of the different pillars of running with intensity and distance and just overall volume and was not very successful to start. What injuries did you face during that time? I had a lot of issues for a very long time with my hips. Um, I've always had some issues with just my low back has just always been a little wonky but then definitely my calves I've had I've missed two marathons because I've had some issues with like posterior tib uh tightness and ankle issues and have just it just gets to the point where it's too tight and it's too sore and I run on it too long (laughs) and then I'm out so it's not uncommon for newer runners like that to face those issues Craig McMillan is famous for saying the aerobic system develops much faster than the neuromuscular system. And I think that's what you saw was mm-hmm. your aerobic system kicking in. You had some natural speed and talent that was coming through, but then the chassis couldn't yeah. handle it. And going straight into Team Rogue after that second marathon may not have been ultimately the best decision. Right. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> in hindsight. <you laughs> yeah, know, in hindsight. No, exactly. Nobody's faulting your ambition, certainly. Six years later. So, so then six years later... <laughs> You are building for May a, mm-hmm. a May race, Vancouver, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 2018. Your first attempt from a healthy standpoint of trying to get a Boston qualifier, yeah. or at least run under 335, which was the standard at mm-hmm. the time. What happened with that race? Um, so I had taken um, this season, and I told myself that 
my thought process was I needed to work on volume. And that had always been the weak point that I'd had in all my trainings that I couldn't consistently string together a training cycle of higher mileage and, and not crazy high, but like 50 to 60 miles and and maintain workouts and then also make it to a start line. So this season, I s- decided to just do miles, focus just on volume. Um, I kept my workouts to just Saturdays um, and would add in um, goal pace runs and, and whatnot in the 20 milers. And as I got closer to Vancouver, I was having some issues again. I think I was pushing a little bit harder than I probably should have. Um, still a new cycle, like fresh 50 miles, and I was still just a little bit redlining. And so when I was capering down into Vancouver, I was a little bit more rickety than I wanted to be. Um, but ultimately, race day, we woke up. Um, it was definitely warm for Vancouver. The race didn't start till 8 or 8.30. The sun was fully out by the time we started. It, I mean, I walked to the star line in a sports bra and shorts and I was warm just standing yeah. there. So, it so you, was, you didn't have the day you wanted there. What was no. your, your time? Uh, it was still a PR. I, I came in just under 350, I think 349 and 40. Got your sub four. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still excited. Yeah. <laughs> six out, six yeah. years later yeah, yeah, than yeah. you wanted. <laughs> yeah. But it's impressive to me. The fact that you stuck to it that, that whole time, you know, a lot, I mean, because six years is a long yeah. time <laughs> and it's interesting in our sport, especially people that are new to the sport, they want to think about it in very short term windows because that's the way most things are thought about three and six and, you know, 12 month windows when really the sport is a years upon years process if you're really committed to it. And the fact that you didn't see another PR between 2012 and 2018, but stuck with it, kept working continue to sign yeah. up for races even if you missed some it's really impressive what kept you going i think i just knew that i was capable of it i just didn't know how to do it i just knew that if i could figure out like the right equation and the right way to do it that i would be successful and so i think i just kind of stepped back from the pressure of the group for a while um and kind of did my own thing i think that whole cycle leading up to vancouver i ran all by myself um and just tried to focus on not getting caught up in everyone else's goals and just focusing on mine and focusing on how my body felt and rest and recovery and strength training and just all of the other things that i think it's easy to just let go by the wayside when it's just, it's just so easy like I said to get caught up in um you know the excitement of of everything and, and the goals and push too hard and and not just really truly listen to your body and take the time you personally need and that was your first season over 50 miles yes consistently <laughs> talk about that adaptation what do you think the key was to at least getting the start line with that sort of volume um, I think the biggest thing, like I said, is is I kind of had to find a balance. Um, as a personal trainer, I can't get up every morning and meet friends at 6 a.m. I had to make my own schedule and run at weird times of the day and, and keep myself self-motivated. Um, but I also really focused, again, on just how I felt. I 
really focused on good quality miles, running easy. I think I ran easier and slower all of those miles than I've ever run before. Um, I definitely tend to be a person who hammers on their easy days. <laughs> and so I was just really mindful of making sure that easy was easy and just focusing on getting the miles in, whatever that looked like. So if I had to break it up, I would break it up into two, two days or however I did around my training schedule. And it wasn't ideal, but it was what I needed to do. Yeah. STFD. Slow the fuck down, as I often say. So after Vancouver, you made the switch to my group, Training with the Morning Show. Meets Wednesday mornings. For those in Austin, come check it out. Talk about that decision. What was that shift like for you, and why do you think that was an important shift? I think I realized after the season of Vancouver, I had a, I wouldn't say a breakthrough race, but I had a race that showed me that I could do it and I got out of my own head for at least a race and it wasn't the race that I wanted but I knew that I could break four and it was just such a artificial number in my head and so I knew having had the season that I had was exactly what I needed I needed to slow down I needed to focus on miles I needed to do all of the little things on my own and then I knew that now that I kind of had that base now was the time to layer in workouts and layer in a support group and and really make it a priority and say this is what I want to do and now I'm going to do it. I remember sitting down and talking about the Boston goal with you. Yeah. What do you remember from that conversation? Right before CIM? No, I oh. I mean early <laughs> when you first joined my group. Oh, I don't remember. I don't know. Oh no. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> in particular. That's fine. I'm just curious. <laughs> Sometimes um, it's always interesting to hear how athletes react to those those types of conversations. I remember it as a fairly straightforward, oh okay. as a fairly straightforward <laughs> conversation. It's just, yeah, I think my message to you was, we know you can do this. Yeah. Now we just need to do the work. Probably focus yeah, on the process. Right. <laughs> That's what I remember of it, and you did. Yeah. Went to work, focused on the process. I of course always emphasize slow down, so you continue with that way. But in my mind, there wasn't a lot of magic that we needed to, there was no fairy dust that we needed to Mm. sprinkle on you to get ultimately to the goal. But somewhere in that process, in early fall, we get a bomb dropped on us from Boston itself that the standard is now officially five minutes faster. Yeah. And I know you took that particularly hard, if I remember correctly. What was your reaction when you found that out? Um. Well, because I think in my head, a couple things. We had talked about a bigger goal than simply qualifying. And in my head, I just, I wanted to qualify with the bare minimum. Like, I just wanted to go. (laughs) Um, Not necessarily, I wasn't necessarily into this huge PR or anything like that. I just wanted to go to Boston. And when it came out that I needed closer to you know like so the timing uh the qualifying time came down five minutes to 330 that was what I had wanted to run at CIM that's what I felt comfortable with because I really struggle still with not being uncomfortable in a race and so it put this level of pressure on me and in I really struggled with the idea of well I don't even know why I'm gonna do this because I don't want to go and have another bad race and if I can't have a good race then I don't want to do it at all. <laughs> you were scared. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, that's a huge 
it's a huge thing to kind of take in and say, okay, you know, you've been training for months. And for me, I felt like I hadn't just been training through the CIM cycle, but I've been training through the entire Vancouver cycle. And that was just a part of it. And so you feel like you've been training for an entire year. And then at the last minute, someone says, hey, run five minutes faster. No big deal. (laughs) It is a big deal. Yeah. In my head, it wasn't a big deal because I knew you could do it. But I understand why that felt pretty shitty. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I struggle and have struggled with my mental game. So So let's talk about that. You do the cycle. We had a great training cycle for you leading up to CIM. We're getting closer to race day. What are you feeling? What anxieties were were swirling in your head? Um there was a lot. Um the biggest one I think being like for me CIM was it. That was it. I I I had kind of had a had a plan that it was all or nothing. Like the chips were on the table and this was going to be the last race that I ran for a while. And I was okay with that. And so that pressure, that kind of like all or nothing pressure, I don't do well with all or nothing. I don't <laughs> even necessarily like people tracking me at home. So um, that was, that was definitely it. And then I definitely felt like I had trained with this amazing group of girls and we were all going together. and. I just, I knew that I was capable of it, but in some ways I didn't want to let anybody down either. Mm-hmm. So, so you're feeling the pressure. Yeah. How did you deal with that? Um, well, so I did something different this time than I've ever done. One of the big things mentally that I deal with is taper week and being restless and anxious in the weeks leading up to a race. And so this week, this year, I went to Europe for 10 days, <laughs> literally in taper, ran like twice, sorry. Um, but it was good for me because I went and I f- had fun and I ate what I wanted, which was great for carb loading. And <laughs> I didn't think about the race at all. I just enjoyed my time. And it was great because it took me away from work. It took me away from stress. It took me away from everything. And I think it was the break mental and physical that I just needed for the race. You dissociated, which is one of the strategies I talk <laughs> about for Taper Madness. Yeah, it was great. And then you come back, mm-hmm. rally starts to set in. We have yeah. our pre-race meeting where yeah. we talk about the plan. <laughs> yeah. What do you take away from that? <laughs> I, this is what I do remember. I do <laughs> remember walking away and um, those in my pace group were like, what did you guys talk about? What did Chris say? And I was like, you know what? Um, I don't know that we talked about pace. I don't know. I don't think we did. No, we didn't talk about pace. <laughs> right. We just talked about uh, just getting in into the zone, you know, and and sticking with the group and and focusing on pace, but like ultimately just letting yourself calm down and and the like I said, the girls that I had trained with, like letting them help me, people who were much more skilled and experienced, let me um, just you know, work with them and, and, uh, run my race and, and focus on every mile at a time and not try to, you know, focus on the bigger picture. Fast forward to race day, December 2nd of last year. You did it. Yeah. You ran three, 328. Yep. Pretty, pretty even splits. Yeah. Very even splits. I was 40 seconds slower on the backside. And 
strong the whole way. Felt good. From what yeah. I understand. And mm-hmm. we saw each other just as you passed the line, finish line. <laughs> I got a big hug. I was ugly crying. You were in tears. <laughs> Paul, your boyfriend was there. Yeah. And everybody was happy. Yeah. What did it feel like on race day? It, um, it kind of just felt like it all clicked. I think there was a moment. There was definitely a moment in the first 10K where Lauren and I started together. We were running together. Um, I saw Tim on the course. I was running with another girl, Andrea. We were all just in, just running, and it was great. But I remember thinking, wow, this course is not as downhill as I thought. Oh, God. <laughs> and I felt like it was very hard. And I remember thinking in the first six miles, like, oh, this is harder than I thought. Oh, no. And... I kept telling myself, and that was my mantra for the race, is this is fine. This is fine. <laughs> and I just kept trying to, every time that doubt would creep in, this is hard. We're going really fast. Oh, I don't know if I can keep this pace up. Is, this is fine. And I want to say by mile 10, I just hit a really good groove, and I just felt fluid. The miles were clicking by. I, didn't, I was getting out of my own head. Um, and then I remember thinking at mile 18, if I just get to 20, I've got this. And I got to 20 and I was like, I've done it. I've, I've got it. And, and then I remember thinking, okay, it's time to speed up. And then each mile I was just like, just keep going, just keep pushing, just keep pushing. And I kept seeing people that I knew and it just kept, you know, pushing me. And yeah, I just, I don't think I even looked at my watch the last six miles. I just kept, I just knew I had to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and I don't know. There's something about turning that finish line and you just see it. And I was ugly. I think I'd been ugly crying (laughs) for like the last half mile. I knew. Yeah, I knew that I was uh, I had it. I knew at 20 I had it, Um, but I didn't have it successfully. So um, I I definitely had to pick it up. I wasn't safe by any means, but um, I knew I felt good. I knew I wasn't going to blow up. I knew all the things that had happened in, in races before weren't going to happen today. And I just, just one at a time, one mile at a time. And it was fine. It was fine. Yeah. Just like your mantra. Yeah. There's a lot to be learned from that. Right. I mean, what do you internalize lessons from, from that? I mean, you ran it unofficially a 21 minute PR. Yeah. Yeah. Got got, bossed the qualifier by Mm -hmm. almost two minutes. Mm -hmm. And you overcame those mental demons that were facing you before. So what do you take away? I think uh, the biggest thing that I took away from that was that being uncomfortable is all in your head. And that if you can just dissociate from being uncomfortable, that you can push through it. Because at no point did anything hurt. I wasn't out of breath. I wasn't having stomach issues. Everything was fine. I just mentally wanted to slow down, but I knew that I could keep pushing. So just continuously telling me that, you know, in my own head was the biggest thing for me since I've struggled mentally for so many races. Well, I'm proud of you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a big deal. But now we have to talk about the plot twist. Yeah. which Which is that a month after... This result, yeah. unofficially, after many ugly crying tears of joy, yeah. as well oh, as, I'm sure, celebratory alcohol and yeah. meals and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and cookies and cupcakes or whatever your, your treat of choice might be, 
I got an email from the race director or one of the race officials with CIM that your result had been flagged for disqualification yeah. for having unofficial assistance in uh, the form of an unofficial pacer who ran with you for half of the race. Yeah. And that was, they were notified by somebody of that fact. And because it is against their rules, according to their website to have an unofficial pacer who jumps in during the middle of the race your result would would be removed unless we had some sort of other mitigating evidence so i got that news he wanted to reach out to me because we'd had a big group there and i had been corresponding with him throughout the pre-race period as they were assisting our group and then i had to get on the phone with you and talk about this email and in a second, we're going to bring in Derek Murphy, who works with CIM. He's also with MarathonInvestigation.com. He had been a part of their their results committee, yeah. essentially to help verify results and catch issues of cheating. He also received communication about this situation. And you have now been removed from the results for this. Yeah. So before we bring Derek on, just quickly talk about what you did wrong. Um, I had a plan, um, a plan that I felt comfortable with. The whole idea with my race was to let others lead me, get out of my own head and, you know, run, just ru- push it and run and trust in all the people that I've trained with all, you know, season long. and. I had um, a friend jump in with me at the halfway point at the relay exchange. Um, she ran with me. Um, like I said, I started with one of my pace partners. We ran the first 13. Um, and then from there, she jumped in. And the three of us ran the rest of the 26.2. I mean, at the end, you know, as we started to close, everyone separated a little bit. But um yeah, I just I just wanted it's like having a comfort blanket. It's like having something safe and um just, you know, it just helps mentally um I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than that. Then so she yeah. ran with me um the rest of the way. So Yeah. And ultimately because someone turned you in, you were disqualified mm-hmm. from the results. I want to bring in Derek Murphy now who works for Marathon Investigate or works as marathoninvestigation.com. He's someone we'll get a full intro here in a second, but I want to get his perspective as somebody who was a part of this process. So, let's bring Derek on. How are you doing today, Derek? Doing good. How are you? We're doing well here. It's much warmer in Austin than it is where you're from. Where are you piping into from? Uh, from near Cincinnati, Ohio. So it was oh about it, it, not as cold as like Chicago is right now, but it was minus four this morning. I think we're up to about nine degrees now and it, it'll be by Sunday. It's going to be 55 degrees and sunny. So only a, only a few more days to suffer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hit, hit the polar vortex. So as we bring you into this discussion, Derek, I just wanted to start with a little bit of introduction. You know, I've followed your work with marathoninvestigation.com for a long time. I know you started as somebody really doing this as a hobby, trying to help find people that might be cheating and getting Boston qualifying standards, particularly 
by inappropriate means. So talk a little bit about how you got into this and how it's evolved to now where I think you're doing this full time. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, basically, I got into it just kind of out of curiosity. Uh, I was following some of the Let's Run stuff on, you know, on some cheating cases, and I was really curious, and people were spending a lot of time, and so my focus was, well, you know, are there any more, you know, we're spending all this time on, at the time, I think it was, in the Mike, it was a Mike Rossi case, the dad of the year, took his kids out of school, and, you know, to go, to run Boston, turns out he yeah, pretty much everyone believes he cut the course in the qualifiers. So everyone was focused on him. So I said, well, are there are more guys like him. And I found some pretty quickly. So that kind of started, started it. And the blog kind of went up as just a way to kind of keep track of it. It was a personal blog. Really, nobody was going there. Um, and then, you know, as I was finding all these cheaters and my, I asked myself, the next logical question was, well, are all these people that are, you know, cutting courses or, using bib mules or whatever, are they actually using those times to enter Boston? So I kind of embarked on a pretty um, tedious project of going through a number of Boston runners to see how many I could find that cheated to get in. And I think I found around 60 or so, you know, going through maybe 1,500 runners, which I prioritized on the ones I thought were most likely to have cheated. So then it went from there. I got picked up by Runner's World. And you know, as I got more attention, people start emailing me with tips and whatnot. So then it just kind of got bigger and bigger. So that's, in a nutshell, you know, how it grew, just kind of from a hobby and just kind of curiosity to, you know, starting to get some attention and then, you know, becoming something more than that. And um, yeah, right now I'm doing it full time. I'm not sure if that'll if that's sustainable or not. Um, but yeah, there's there's definitely the need, and it's expanded a little bit more in scope from just being. Boston qualifiers to, okay, let's look at anybody on the podium. I've written about ultra races. I've written about triathlons. Um, I have people email me on, um, oh gosh, I'm mountain, <laughs> mountain climbing, you know, claims, uh, you know, obstacle races. So yeah, so I'm, I get tips wow. from everything and, uh, you know, I've, you know, I'm open to writing about just about anything kind of within, you know, cheating within the endurance, you know, endurance racing. Now, are you a marathon runner yourself? Uh, yeah, it depends on what, how you define running, but, uh, yeah, I, I've done, I guess now I've completed officially 12 marathons. Um, I, but the first 10 were all done over 10 years ago. And then I just started getting back into it, uh, this past year. And I, I did the flying pig, um, did New York city and I was running the air force marathon, but it, of course got black flagged and I got pulled off. Uh, because of the weather and because of me being slow, but I was running that the week before I was doing a 24 hour race. So I wasn't trying to go fast and, you know, got caught up due to the weather. So that, that wasn't, that was a DNF for me. But now you've done a 24 hour race. Yeah, I've done three of those. Again, two of wow. them were a long time ago. And then I did the 20, North coast 24. I did, um, this past year and I actually did, um, the backyard ultra, but I, I only made it through officially one lap. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> But but it was fun. I was kind of there for the experience, and you know, I, I helped to do more than one lap. But having basically run on pavement, when you start doing a little bit on trails, and you know, and it's rainy, you're not, you know, that wasn't quite what I was used to. Yeah. Now you, as you mentioned, this became a full-time gig. You're now consulting with races to help them verify results and try to eliminate cheating from their races. CIM, California International Marathon, being one of those. How did that role and relationship develop? Uh, yeah, actually, this is a uh, the 
2018 race was the second year that I was partnering with uh, CIM and uh, CIM I'm on the results verification committee so I'm one of you know a handful of people who are you know on that and my job there is to you know review the results you know look at splits and and validate all the age group recipients where with them I'll look at you know photos and whatnot and and that came to be to be when uh, two years ago, Eli Ash, the race director of CIM, had emailed me regarding a situation where they came across a runner who was advertising um, his bib for sale, and he wanted the recipient to be able to earn him a boss of qualifying time. So he was going to give, you know, additional money if the person was able to do a qualify, you know, the seller for Boston. So he, the guy was advertising for a bib mule, as we say. So Eli reached out to me and said, "Hey, how would you handle this? And you know, you know, what's your, you know, what's your protocol? What do you do?" And so that, that's that's how you know I first got in contact with Eli, and then you know we helped them through that situation, and then from there they signed up, um, you know, to be a, you know, we signed up to you know partner with CIM for, you know, to review the results and to check for, uh, you know, any course cutting, banditing, bib muling, that kind of thing. What does that process look like for you after the unofficial results are are completed? Yeah, so so, so pretty much right after the unofficial results um, are completed, I get the um, from the timing company. They send me the I'll actually scrape the results pretty much the day of or throughout the race, um, as I do with races who don't sign up with me. But then I get the official uh, the I say the official unofficial results from the timing uh, company, where there's a couple um, you know which has all the splits, all the published splits, and then there's a couple other um non-published um splits for you know kind of for an extra verification um you know where it's you know there's no actual timing mats is you know radio frequency and they're on various parts of the course just to kind of check like, hey somebody missed a mat but oh they tripped this one okay it must be you know it was a technical issue so it's kind of it's kind of another check so i get access to all those splits as well and then basically kind of put them into my algorithm and look for any kind of suspicious times, you know, somebody starting out running 11 minute pace, finishing with a six minute pace kind of thing. Um, just anything odd that you know, looks for more review. And so it, and that's the gist of it. And I also do, and I, I always catch a few runners this way is I'll compare somebody's results to prior years, whether it's at CIM or other races and um, look at the big variances of so somebody's run CIM for three consecutive years in a five hour range. Then they put down a three hour time. I'm going to look at photos to make sure it's the right, you know, it's really the same runner and there's nothing odd going on. So, and I always catch, you know, some doing that. And I also, um, lastly, I check before the race and, um, you know, and after I have a, I have a list of runners who've been caught cutting courses or have been suspected of cutting courses in the past at any race. And I check the registration against my list as to runners to keep, keep an eye on, you know, throughout the race. And in the last two years working with the race, what are the types of situations you found where maybe somebody didn't do things the right way? Um, yeah, there, there's really not. Um, with, with CIM, the, the course is a it's a point to point, um, so you don't have a whole lot of course cutting. What you typically have is kind of like the accidental cheater, where you know somebody you know gets hurt or you know or whatever or bails on the race early and takes the you know they have to take the bus. Uh, into the finish area, then they're going to pick up their bag or whatnot, and maybe they, you know, they cross the finish mat, they go too close to the finish mat, and they have a finishing time. Um, so, you know, they didn't intend to cheat, they didn't take a medal, but they had a finish time, which looking at the numbers would be very suspicious. So, it, so it's clearing a lot of those out. Um, and so, what we do the, in the process we look at is, you know, anybody who's missed um, um, two or more timing mats, they'll get an email, say, hey, you know, 
did you really, you know, did you run the course? Did you really run the full course? And do you have any information, you know, that would, you know, prove you ran the full course? And, you know, and then we kind of make determinations from there. And in most cases, someone's like, no, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't run the full course. You know, I had to stop after, you know, 15 miles or, you know, at halfway point. Um, and then that, that's pretty easy. So rarely, actually, I don't think we had any situations of somebody, you know, adamant that they ran the course where they in fact didn't. Um, but, you know, we did catch, you know, a decent number of runners who just, again, they were in the results. They shouldn't have been, we removed them and it was you know, no, no drama or no, you know, no, no real fighting. Some people would get offended when they get the initial email. Um, but again, that's just kind of a, I was like, hey, you know, you didn't register. And you, and what happens there a lot of times when runners aren't registering at the timing mats, you know, they have their bib, you know, it's, you know, it's on a bib belt that's behind them or it's obscured by, you know, by their, by water bottles or, or whatnot. So you need to, you know, the bib should be, you know, high and, you know, for forward facing, uh, you know, to make sure you, you know, hit all the timing mats and don't get questioned. Because there has been a case, I think, that Eli was referencing on your podcast where somebody was basically using a race belt to hand off to somebody else, perhaps midway, or at least that was the suspicion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen that or you'd see somebody carrying um, carrying multiple bibs. Um, and I've come across that a number of times. Uh, one time at CIM where it's, you know, somebody's carrying their bib and then the bib registered to somebody else. And you can that's pretty easy to catch because you look for people with identical splits. I mean, to the second, and then you check photos to make sure this, you know, and if the second person's not there, you know somebody's carrying two bibs. How long does this process take for you? Um, the longest part, the, the initial part's not that long. I have it pretty much down to a science. I do it for a lot of races uh, where it's just, you know, again, checking the timing splits, looking for the stuff that's impossible. Or, and uh, what, what takes the longest, so that, that's within, I can you know, get through that part of it within a day or so. Uh, what takes the longest is, you know, with CIM, part of our agreement is I'm validating all of the age group awards. So I'm looking at the top three, male and female, and all the different age brackets. And I'm looking at those in detail. So I'm checking photos, you know, versus past photos or other races or social media, just to make sure that the person who was, claiming that that finish is the person wearing the bib because uh, a lot of times you have and I, I find that most major races you can find somebody who's you know, placed in the age group award where it's basically a bib selling situation so you had a you had a older female selling it to a younger male or or something to that that's usually kind of the typical one i had a case where Catherine switzer was bumped out of age group awards by that, that kind of situation in new york oh, wow. uh so it was yeah so it's it just again i'm just looking for that and that takes a while that, take, that takes about a week or two to uh, to go through you know all those results is probably you know over 100 results where i'm validating photos and doing the best i can to make sure the person crossing the finish line was the person registered to that bib you don't want to bump Catherine switzer no, 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 you don't. <laughs> Running royalty, uh, that'll get you caught. So the case that we're talking about today with Ashley here is unique in a sense that I'm assuming you haven't seen this very often, but she was disqualified for having an unofficial pacer or having unofficial assistance in the race, somebody who ran with her for, I think it was about halfway. So how did that case come to you? Yeah, that's not something that I actively notice or actively look for. Um, but um, I, I did receive an email, let's say, within the week after the race, maybe maybe earlier than that, from somebody that 
uh, you know, saw, um, I believe it was probably the Instagram post or maybe, maybe within the running group, uh, you know, post on the boards that, you know, that, um, actually that saw that she utilized Pacer. Um, and so, you know, so, so I got the email, which, you know, kind of laid that out. Um, and then from there, I had to kind of, I was obligated to, you know, to follow that through and report that, that to CIM. And you know, I also found, you know, looked at the, you know, social media and looked at race photos and race videos to confirm that, yeah, she, she did indeed have a, a Pacer that was not registered for the race. And, and that's kind of the key. Um, and then, you know, we were able to, you know, through social media, you know, I, identify who that pacer was um, and confirm that no, she was not registered for the race. Not just that you know, the bib wasn't visible. We had to you know, confirm that, okay, that you know, the person she used as the pacer was not a registered participant of CIM. Yep. And on that note, I mean, this is part of the reason why we're having this discussion and Ashley agreed to, to come on really is to talk about this rule because I think part of it is just raising awareness that this is something that is against the rules. If you look at CIM's website itself, there's an events rules page that says no official runners are allowed on the course, no unofficial assistance of any kind may be provided to entrance. This includes pacing by a coach, friend, or family member. Even if this person is officially entered, the only pacers on the course are the official CIM pace team leaders. Now, which basically means if somebody jumps in to run with you, that's against the rules. And exactly. you can you can be disqualified accordingly. Now I've heard Eli, the race director, talk about this. And it's not only an issue of not having assistance, but it's also an issue of making sure that they can protect the integrity of their course and the resources that they're providing on the course. So there's lots of reasons for it. Now, one sort of gray area, at least in this rule, as, as it says on the website, is it talks about you can't have a pacer even if the person is officially entered. Now, my understanding of that part of the rule is that's that that's primarily for the championship part of the race. I heard Eli talking on your podcast that somebody has signed up, registered, starting the race from the beginning with you and running alongside you to earn a Boston qualifier. That would be okay. Primarily right. what they're trying to get to with that rule is that somebody in the U.S. Marathon Championships might not have or isn't allowed to have somebody run with them as a pacer, as a part of the championship event. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly correct. And I'll get with the Eli to clarify that rule. And, and on the podcast, I was even kind of saying, well, pulling out all these what ifs, you know, with Eli to make sure that we got, you know, some good clarity there where, okay, what if the person is registered for the race, but they register for the full marathon, but they decide to hop in at the half? Is that allowed? And Eli's answer was no. You know they need to start. You know they need to start the race and be you know competing, um, you know competing in the same race or say the same race. It could be a, you know it could be a male competing in the same you know marathon. The start times are the same. Um, so you know, again within the non-elite field. So um, so in the case of Ashley, if you know the runner that was you know pacing her was registered for the race and started from the beginning, that would have been fine. If she was registered for the race and hopped in at mile you know at the halfway point, that would have been against the USATF rules. And, and honestly, probably nothing she ever would have, you know, it may not have been noticed if that were, you know, if that were the case. If, you know, if she had a bib on and was registered, no one would have looked, you know, thought twice about that photo. Right. Now, one thing to sort of extend this discussion related to the rules is that if you look at the USATF rules, which I believe the CIM rules are based on, it does talk about pacing as a form of unofficial assistance. It also talks about taking 
food or nutrition from somebody off course as a form of unofficial assistance. So as a, as a technical matter, you couldn't also grab a handful of gels from somebody who might be standing on the side of the course or even an orange from somebody passing it out who might have just be on the course cheering. As a technical matter, those details are also in the official USATF rules. Is that something you've ever come across, that level of unofficial assistance? I've had, it's always been kind of in relation to pacing. Um, if someone, you know, say, hey, this you know, person's getting paced and handing, you know, handing supplies. And you'll hear about that occasionally, like at the, at the elite level. Like, hey, you know, somebody had a pacer, somebody had something available to them that's not available to everybody, which I think is kind of the spirit of the rule. Um, where it's, again, if you have somebody, an unofficial aid station set up and they're there for everybody, is the, you know, the person's not getting unique benefit that's my understanding um mm. you know of that but yeah but if you have um you know if you have support you know station throughout the course to give you some you know s- some additional um aid that's you know that's for you specifically that that that's where it's an issue for example somebody... so you can't you can't have like your own personal aid station set up at right. you know every every <laughs> five miles or whatever uh, you know right. just you know that's you know just for you if you got somebody you know we've all run the races you know that have the beer stops and everything else i don't think you're gonna get disqualified for um you know for hopping there again it's op- open to everybody um so that, that's my understanding and that's how i would interpret it yeah. um, maybe that's... usatf would have something different to say if you know if you know shalane's running a race and takes you know something you know something from you know a lot of times you see people you know have orange slices or they'll have you know the candy or something that's not the official aid station you know would that be an issue with them i don't want to say it wouldn't be but not something i would certainly look for i have seen in races somebody who had somebody biking alongside them that was passing bottles back and forth and so that would be the type of assistance that you're yeah, talking about. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we had, um, you had asked, um, I think before, like, you know, how often does this kind of come up as pacing disqualification? I actually wrote about one just a few months ago, the Heartland Marathon. Uh, the winner was disqualified for having pacers on the course. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure about the, you know, passing eight or whatever, but it was just strictly for, you know, the same exact rule uh, for having um, you know, for having somebody unregistered, you know, pacing up the course. And actually in that race, the second place finisher was disqualified as well for, um, he was supposedly misdirected. So it's a, the third place person actually, you know, ended up, you know, getting the wins. So that, that was a little bit of a mess. But um, so that, that's the one case I'm aware of where um, a pacer um, resulted in disqualification. Now, one thing that to me, this discussion then raises as you look at the letter of the law, is also the question of protests for rule violations like this. On the CIM site, it talks about a 24-hour window for which protests can be filed and that those protests must come from official entrance. If you look at the USATF rules, it also talks about a 24-hour window and that protests must come from official entrance and or athlete representatives, which I would presume would be coaches and agents those sort of official representative for athletes. Is that something in your mind that should factor into this equation? Um, it, it, this wasn't a formal protest. You know, it was kind of in the, I definitely see, I, I definitely hear that argument. Um, hey, you know, I got an email from, you know, was, wasn't within 24 hours, um, you know, when, you know, when I heard about this, but um, yeah, I would say it's kind of the normal course of review um, where, 
uh, get a non-interested participant or somebody, you know, a, hey, you know, this person, you know, got the course or this person had a pacer, which again, I'm not equating those at all. Uh, right. But um, yeah, so I think it was in the normal course of review. Cause I mean, the, the court review, the results aren't, you know, marked official until um, it's about a month after the fact. And so the you know, review goes on through there. So there's going to be disqualifications throughout that. Um, in this case, it just so happens that we, you know, learned about this through a, through somebody emailing me. And actually they emailed me. They didn't email CIM. I'm not even sure if they were aware that I was officially, um, you know, partnered with CIM, um, right. to be honest. But, but it, it again came through me. So I, you know, I looked at it and then I, you know, I passed it on to CIM. And as, as a committee, and I, I can tell you, nobody was happy um, about, you know, having to issue this disqualification. It's not, you're never happy, but if somebody's like blatantly cheating, blatantly cutting the course or the guy carrying two bibs, like, okay, yeah, we got this SOB. This wasn't the case. No one was saying Ashley was a cheater. No one's labeling her um, as such. It's just, again, the matter of probably not being aware of, fully aware of the rules. Right. Yeah. And, and that I think is completely understandable, but it does make me think, as I go back and say, okay, well, what are the rules? And really dig into those. Interestingly, in the USATF rules, it talks about a seven-day protest window for events where results aren't finalized on the day of competition. And I don't know what should be relevant there, but it does, to me, if if we're going to go down the path of having these types of disqualifications, it does raise that question. And then ultimately a question about, okay, what is the the then follow-on appeal process if that exists. And that's very clear in the context of a USATF track meet where there's a whole official process for that. But in these situations with races races like CM, it's a little bit less clear. And if you're somebody in the middle of the pack who may unknowingly violate a rule, how do you know what your quote-unquote rights are associated with something like this? And so I think it does raise question questions and clarifications. If you look at USATF, or sorry, USAT, USA Triathlon as a corollary, there's interesting rules there. And, and triathlon is a different world from a cultural standpoint on this topic. Unofficial assistance is something that is definitely frowned upon in that world. And is, there's a culture of sort of weeding it out in the middle of triathlon races. And so if you you know, people know you don't have somebody run with you in the run course because you can right. get time penalized for that. You don't grab things from people off course because you can get time penalties for that. There's also a protest window associated with USAT rules that says basically the protests have to either be filed by the in-course referees or by official entrance within 60 minutes of the race finishing. And so... You know, so those types of things are clearly delineated in that world where it's regularly enforced. In our world, in the running world, it hasn't been. And so I do think it raises this question of having a little bit more clarity around the specific nature of assistance. I think the pacing one is pretty clear, but I think the course nutrition or other assistance could be more clear. And then you know, what is the timeline? Is there a statute of limitations? Could I go back and dig through race photos from a race a year ago and say, hey, this person had somebody without a bib running next to them? So anyway, my point is, I, I do think that there's still some room for clarity in this world so that we can all fully 
know the rules, know the rights of the runners in the cases where disqualifications may happen, and and that way we're all sort of operating on the same. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And then what's you know what's the case? You know, if you have you know, I mean, you can look at photos. Okay, you have the kids hopping in towards the end of the course to you know the you know finish with the, you know with their dads and stuff. Okay, is that where they being paced? <laughs> right. I mean, right. you can you know, hey, they were running aside and not runner. Yeah, it might be a five year old, but they were running aside, you know, alongside that runner. You see, you see that in triathlon too, and I don't think they. I think that's um, a little more. Um, common sense you know, kind of right. thing but but yeah right. but you, you know you get that um all the time and i you know i don't um, disagree that it, more clarity and also the one uh, point not all you know one i've seen instances there was um, a case with the uh, cleveland marathon uh with there was a protest filed for the winner this past year um where again his the bib he had a layer his bib wasn't visible and so it's you know so there was initial protest filed and then they you know backed off technically if you're an elite running with your bibs not visible, you can be disqualified. Because you're supposed to know who you're running, you know, running against. Hey, is that right. guy really running my race, or is he doing the half marathon, or is he <laughs> right. bandit? Um, in that case, they knew who he was, and so. But again, they made the decision, and but Cleveland was not USATF sanctioned. Um, all courses that are Boston qualifiers, they're USATF course certified. That doesn't mean they're sanctioned. Um, you know, USATF won't step in for a non-sanctioned race. Right. CIM happened is sanctioned, and they're the USATF national championship. Um, but you know, many uh, marathons aren't sanctioned, so they're not required to you know uphold the USATF rules. So you know, you may have a you know, there may be a marathon that they'll yeah hey, okay he had a pacer no big deal you know you know we don't care we'll keep you know keep getting results. So right. um, it's really kind of in that case you know the rules are up to the race you know, the race itself um, you know versus you know so the USATF you know sanctioned USATF certified is you know, definitely a um, yeah, you know, uh, it needs to be mentioned as far as you know the difference. Again, all, all pretty much all races are USATF uh, course certified, especially for Boston qualifiers. That's that's the only requirement to be a Boston qualifier. Um, and then, but yeah, but the USATF um, sanctioned is you know where can they need to pull you know pull those rules, and then USATF would get involved in any kind of appeals process. Yep. Ultimately, the moral in this case is don't run with an unofficial pacer. No, and, and, I, and, and I think probably they, they, yeah, they probably knew that, hey, you know, I know Eli, Eli's been very vocal about, hey, you know, don't run on the course if you're not registered. So, um, but yeah, but I think the corollary to that is, or, you know, alongside of that is, okay, not realizing that, hey, the person that you're running with is, you know, getting, you know, could get penalized. Um, so yeah, 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 but, but definitely, yeah, definitely no unregistered pacers they have you know there's pace teams that are you know set up and pretty much to cover every you know every boston qualifying time um you know and um you know utilize those um you know that's what they prefer or again if you have you know if your friends registered for the you know for the four races as well then you can you can run with them from the start to the finish now one final question which is unrelated but related and i know you and eli talked about this on the podcast more thoroughly What's your perspective on Boston's role in helping clarify the rules or to, to at least lead from the standpoint of having races that are following a consistent set of rules? You mentioned you have to be USATF certified. That's really the only requirement in addition to publishing the results in some way. Yeah, yeah. What, what more would you like to see Boston do to set a common standard here? 
uh, yeah, I, I'd like them just to have a minimal uh, and kind of what I've backed off. I don't want them to force, you know, races to have X number of timing mats or to, um, you know, kind of force technology or expense on a race necessarily to be a Boston qualifier. You know, you have a lot of very good small races that have been going on forever that may only have, you know, one intermediate timing mat or they may not have any, but they may have other, you know, they may have volunteers at, this, at points and they may do a very good job monitoring. So I don't want to I'm not advocating for, you know, cutting those races out because you know, in some cases it might kill, might kill a race. You know, it might have a lot, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, if you have a race of 150 people and, you know, 30 of them are going for Boston qualifiers there. And, you know, then you'd say, hey, this is no longer a BQ race. You know, it could kill a race. So I'm not advocating that. But, um, but there are a handful of races that I'm aware of that, you know, don't seem to take any care or, you know, really, you know, once the race is over, you know, they barely have, you know, don't issue any disqualifications and results that are absurd remain in there. And people have Boston qualifying times, you know, where they obviously cut the course. I wrote an article just the other day about the Philadelphia marathon was an example uh, where just obvious, uh, you know, people who did the second half of the marathon in 15 minutes, they're, they're still in the, they're still in the results. And it's been that way for years and they have wow. Boston qualifying times. And so if they were to use their time at Philadelphia to register for Boston, um, they would be allowed in. Um, you know, again, I would catch them. I'd keep on reporting. I keep on pushing on it. And um, Boston has done a better job at questioning some of those results. So if something brought to their attention, that's really absurd. They'll go back to Philadelphia and say, Hey, did this person really complete the race? And usually then they'll, you know, They'll okay, cave, but there, you know, there's cases where, um, you know, Boston just relies, generally they just rely on the qualifying race to say, yes, yeah, legitimate time. Um, you know, they may ask them twice in, in some cases, <laughs> but ultimately it's up to the, to race, the race issue, the disqualification. And, you know, you have some races that are, have shown they're unwilling to do so. And I, I think, I think Boston can, you know, step up and put some minimal requirements as, you know, the races, you know, you know, do the bare minimum of, you know, scrubbing out and removing runners from the results where it's you know hundred percent certainty they didn't run the race. Right. I agree with that. I also tend to believe that they should set a course elevation change limit. But yeah, I know we, that, we talked we talked about yeah we talked about that's that. a little a bit of, of a rabbit hole too. Yeah, and I've 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 gone back and forth on that. I, you know, I see. I mean, well, Eli, I mean, and CIM is a downhill course. It's you know, I think he said, hey, anybody that's more downhill than us shouldn't be a qualifier. <laughs> but it's, right. You know, and I think they're right. You know, they're right. You know, not quite as downhill as Boston's downhill course, but you know, no one's going to say yeah. Boston's an easy course. So it's not as easy as just saying elevation. The point is, okay, what about the weather and what about all that? But I do know just from my reviews um, that courses like St. George are significantly faster and runners um did analysis you know runners that qualify for boston at st george are going to run boston in a much slower time than they qualified and that's kind of my benchmark for you know when i review runners you know i think may have cheated i look at people with the real large differentials between their qualifying time and their finish time the first year i did it st george was all you know st george and the revel races were all up to the top so i know people you know you know, that, that, you know, train for it, that run those downhill races, you know, it definitely helps them because they're nowhere near that, you know, in other races, let alone Boston. So, yeah, I mean, it would, you know, to me that would, you know, on one hand, it would all those, but, you know, just the, the very, you know, blatant ones, you know, the rebel races starting on top of the mountain, go down to the sea level um, kind of thing, you know, you take those out and a whole lot more people, you know, get in, you know, under the, you know, instead of cutting off, right. you know, the standard, but... Yeah, I've proposed a rule that Boston just limit it to races that have the same or or less net downhill than Boston. Yeah, 
which to me seems like a reasonable limit, which would include courses like CIM. But it does it does yeah, feel it, a little bit unfair to me it, it, that somebody would use a course like that to get a standard and you equate that on the same level with somebody who ran a flat course to get there. Yeah, yeah. Or you can yeah, you just want to adjustment, but then that's just that's just, you know. It opens up a whole bunch more. <laughs> it does. But, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that qualify at level and they could qualify elsewhere if they wanted to. But there, you know. But yeah. um, but then they can qualify with it much faster. Yeah, much more safely. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Um, yeah, and I get emails, messages on that, and I you know definitely see it when I you know when I kind of did a review. I mean, the top you know the top ten qualifiers against him, CIM was on there as far as the differences, and then it was just littered with uh, the, the Tunnel Marathons in Washington, the Revel Series in St. George was pretty much, you know, the rest of the ones that I kind of deemed as the easiest qualifying courses. Right. Well, Derek, we really appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us, helping us clarify the rules and educate the world on this specific case as well as others. And, of course, thank you for all you do to keep our sport honest and to have the integrity that it should. We really appreciate it. No, th- thanks and thanks for having me on. And again, I hope hope Ashley's able to you know qualify elsewhere. And you know, hope just doesn't put a you know too much of a bad taste in her mouth. It, we <laughs> really did kind of feel bad about kind of how that you know came down. And you know, but ultimately, as a USATF sanctioned race and the champion you know, championship, there really wasn't a choice once we became aware of you know of the situation. Yeah, understood. She will get it done. I promise. As her coach, All we right. will get her there. <laughs> All, right. All right, great. Thank you, sir. Okay, thank you. Bye. So you, at this point, Ashley and you were on listening to that conversation yeah. with Derek. At this point, you've accepted the ruling. Yeah. Said, hey, I, I made a mistake, and, and I'm thankful for you to come on to help share this story as a cautionary tale that this is something that isn't legal within the context of these races, and it's something I think that has been more casually handled in the running world Mm -hmm. in terms of people sort of not really thinking of it as a rule violation i know myself i've jumped into races to help people for a period of time and and there's a culture of hey we want to all support each other it's not thinking of it as cheating but really that hey i want to support my friend and help them Mm -hmm. get their goal and so we've all i think done it at some level and you know but at the same time in this situation you've you've got to accept the the outcome of the situation knowing that you broke the rules what is it like listening to Derek talk about it um i mean ultimately i understand why what happened and the results of what happened but in the same spirit of the community and with running i find that I don't know anybody who at some point in their marathon career hasn't ran with a friend or hasn't paced somebody, hasn't jumped in. I know that, like I said, like we all support encouraging each other. And I think, you know, at some point someone can say, I've jumped in for somebody or I've helped somebody. Um, So I understand why it happened. I think it, it hurts in the sense that I feel. I understand that I broke a rule, but I feel that um, it was not in a malicious intent. It was not in any way did I think that um, I was cheating. We wanted to buy a bib, um, actually, um, 
the person who jumped in with me needed her own BQ and would have gladly bought a bib or, or paid the transfer fee if that had been an option. So there's no malicious intent whatsoever. Um, it's just hard to feel um, kind of that it was kind of a personal attack and that I think right. is what I struggle with the most. It's hard. And the other part of it is as a coach, I know you were ready. I know you ran those miles. Yes, Becky was there as an un- quote unquote unofficial pacer, yeah. but you could have done it without her there too. Yeah. Which is also the hard part about yeah. this. If she hadn't been there for whatever reason, if she'd missed her flight, yeah. <laughs> then you yeah. still in my heart, I believe you still would have done it. And so that that sucks. Mm-hmm. But now we move on. Yeah. We accept it, we move on. And obviously share this story as a cautionary tale for those so that they don't make the same mistake, but also because I want people to be inspired by your journey, not just the journey you took to get to CIM and to run the time you did, but also now your continuing journey to yeah. to get an official <laughs> Boston qualifier. Yeah. So let's talk about that. As you look forward, what's what's your plan to go get this now again? Um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> or, I, or do you even want to? I, I, that's, I think that's ultimately the, um, issue right now. I think I'm, I was very, when it happened, I was like, that's fine. I can do it. And I was very rah, rah. And then I think when kind of the adrenaline wore off, everything kind of sunk in and I, and I had very specific plans for 2019 and, and the years on. And as it kind of, I think, the adrenaline wore off and the kind of pain of it uh, kind of crept in, I am just trying to find my balance right now and try to find out if I feel like mentally I'm ready to go back into it or if yeah. I think I need a little bit of time to process and then come back and... I don't, at no point am I going to stop running. Um, and it's definitely a goal that I'm going to go for. I just don't have any immediate plans right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't. Well, that's understandable. Yeah. It's a tough pill to swallow process and then, and then find that motivation again. Cause we yeah. know how hard you have to work yeah. to get to that goal. As your coach, I know that with another cycle, we could get yeah. you to a much faster time. So I know that it's infinitely within reach, but at the same time, you have to have the will and the motivation to go get it. And now with this sort of tricky, bad taste in your mouth about this experience, I could understand why it would be hard to jump right back at it. And I think CIM was such a big stepping stone for me that taught me that I didn't have to be afraid of the marathon and that I can do it, that in some ways... I don't feel like I've peaked in my fitness. And so I feel like I want to do it in the right way. And I don't necessarily want to jump into something too quick. Um, I feel like I know that I'm capable of so much. So, and that I have done it once and I can do it again. And so I want to really make that statement when I do. And you'll do it. I believe I'll be in your corner to help. And now I think you'll have a lot more people in your corner, <laughs> in your so, corner yeah. to help. I think, you know, this is a heartbreaking yeah. tale. And yes, 
you know, I believe you're doing a great job accepting this outcome with grace, but I also know that it's complicated yeah. and, and it's not easy to move past this type of situation, yeah. but I'm in your corner. There'll be many others in your corner. If people want to follow your journey, yeah, how can they do that? Um, as always, um, you can follow me on my blog, uh, Swift Running Fitness. It's uh, swiftfit.net, or you can always follow me on Instagram. It's swiftrunning.fit. I try to update most, most days, but I have been trying to kind of include more of my running journey. Yeah. And you have a lot of good stuff on there yeah. besides just your running journey. Yeah, of course. Including, of course. <laughs> if, if yeah. I were into it, great outfit suggestions and all hey, kinds of yeah, good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But Gear I mean, reviews <laughs> yeah. and strength training tips as a yeah. personal trainer. So there's a lot of good stuff on there. Yeah. Follow Ashley's journey. Thank you for sharing your story. I think there's Thank a you. lot to learn from it, not just in terms of this unfortunate outcome, but also just what you did to stick with it to ultimately get this result, official or unofficial. Yeah. And that's inspiring. So thank you for joining. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. This has been episode 112 of the Running Rogue podcast, and we'll talk to you next time.